Good morning, class! For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Almost Presidents Podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk American presidential politics through the lens of the loser. So, Kevin, it's the month of September, and uh, we are back. People have been talking shit on social media all summer in the NBA and the NFL. And uh, now in September, as far as football goes, and October, as far as the NBA goes, we can finally see... uh, See who uh, has the right to talk smack. I can't wait. Football season's uh, right around the bend. I thought you were saying that people were talking about sh- talking shit about us, and I was like, "Whoa, really? That sounds like it'd be really good for us." But <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I should have clarified now. right away that I was talking about the NFL and the NBA. But yeah, I mean, I, I think any attention would be good attention for us at this point. We're still growing. Um, yeah, so yeah. if people if people want to talk shit, you know, talk shit. I mean, find somebody famous, talk shit about us. Yeah, definitely. If if people want to trash us on the internet, that's totally welcomed at this point. At one at some point down the line, we might not welcome it, but it's cool now for sure. Yeah, no. I and mean, as soon as you're done, leave a five star review, and uh, we will go on from there on our merry way. Yeah. But uh, Kevin, how are things going with you? They're going. Yeah. I mean, I I guess uh, the the real concern is how things are going with you. I'm not. I, I've been working this whole summer, but I'm not in that situation that teachers are in right now where uh, I don't know if you're the type who panics or if you're the type who is excited about a new school year, but for me, it's just business as usual. So interestingly enough, I am uncharacteristically calm, cool, and collected about the coming school year. But if you were to ask me how much I've looked over the curriculum between June and now, um, I could probably quantify it in an amount of time that's less than an hour. So I don't know if that Mm. gives you any sense of it. Um, But with that in mind, I mean, there's a lot of like mechanical planning that colleagues and I have done, you know, to hopefully make the year go a little bit more successfully for the kids, just like from an organizational standpoint um, and just kind of streamlining things between subjects just to make it easier for them so that the expectations will be clear across the board. So I feel good about that, but uh, it'll definitely be a busy long weekend for me. Listeners, if you're listening to this close to when it's coming out, uh, you might be listening to it as I'm frantically planning and uh, looking over that curriculum. Yeah, I I remember I used to I used to be kind of on the side of getting a little bit excited for the new school year, you know, new opportunities, that sort of thing. And I would always change things up, start a new thing, try something different. You know, it was a pretty cool time. But I definitely understand people who are like, fuck, 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 like my life's over now. (laughs) I mean, it's fun, man. Honestly, I, I was looking forward to the end of the summer anyway. I was getting bored, kind of yeah. nothing really to do. I didn't do much traveling over the summer after my summer job ended. So I'm ready to be back. And yeah, I'm looking forward to a great school year. And uh, I guess you folks will get some updates in October if I'm uh, still around from September. But I'm sure it'll be fine. I yeah. think it'll be a great year. I'm looking forward to it. So as always, folks, before we bring you this month's episode, you can find us on social media. On Facebook, you can just search The Almost Presidents Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Almost Presidents Podcast. And on Twitter, we're at Almost Pod. 
And of course, you can email us as well with any questions or comments. Our email is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com. And feel free to send hate mail there too. That's always welcome as well. Yeah, just no death threats, please. And enjoy the episode, folks. We got an extra long one for you this month. Uh, We have a guest on a high school history teacher, a friend of ours named Katie. I'm sure we're going to mention her as soon as the episode starts. But uh, definitely enjoy because you are going to get hit with probably one of the most knowledgeable guests that we've had on the podcast. So enjoy. All right, now let's get into it. So today we'll be diving into part four of a multi-part series on Samuel Tilden and the disastrous election of 1876. If you haven't checked out the other episodes in the series and you want to go back and start at the beginning of the story, feel free to put this episode on pause and check those out. We'll be right here when you get back. As for the rest of you listeners out there who are all caught up with the series, let's go ahead and get started. So if you listen to the Bobby Kennedy series, you might be coming into this month's episode with a little bit of nerves. We spent the majority of our first episode on Bobby Kennedy, for those of you listening, not really talking about Bobby Kennedy. And now we're in the second season of our podcast on the fourth episode of our Samuel Tilden series without making much mention of Tilden. Well, if that's the case, listener, and you're nervous, those are your concerns. First of all, let us do our jobs. Like, come on, trust us a little bit, you know? And second, this will be the episode for you because we're going to spend this episode getting to know almost President Samuel Tilden. Now, before we get started, it's worth mentioning that the Tildens obviously aren't the Kennedys, so finding source material about the life of Samuel Tilden proved to be a little bit more challenging. One of the more comprehensive biographies on Tilden, it's called The Life of Samuel Tilden, is this uh, two-volume biography, and it was written by one of his contemporaries, John Bigelow. Bigelow himself was a fellow Democrat and a close friend to Tilden throughout Tilden's life. He even served as Tilden's campaign manager during the election of 1876, And when Tilden died, he made sure Tilden's desire to use his money to establish a free library in New York came to fruition. Bigelow even acted as the library's first president. All of this is to say that Bigelow was Tilden's bro, and oftentimes in the biography, his hype man. Sometimes he'll rationalize something that Tilden does, and will often rise to his defense when it comes to the positions that Tilden takes on many of the issues of his day. So much of our biographical sketch of Tilden that we're going to give here is the product of this constant give and take, along with a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to just how much Bigelow elevated the subject of his biography in his mind and in his writing. And yet at the same time, few had as intimate access to our almost president as Bigelow did. I mean, biographers Evan Thomas and Larry Tye certainly didn't personally know Bobby Kennedy, whereas Bigelow personally knew Samuel Tilden. The two men were acquainted for much of their adult lives, so unlike many biographers, he actually knew his subject personally. Tilden gave Bigelow access to all of his public papers as well as his private correspondence, so things went pretty deep. Additionally, Bigelow was more than familiar with the struggles Tilden as well as the country were up against at the time because he lived through them himself. They were both born and raised in New York and grew up to become New York Democrats. Bigelow was also entrusted as one of the executors of Tilden's estate. So perhaps in a way, John Bigelow is the most knowledgeable person out there who's ever wrote extensively about Tilden, at least that we came across. But there's also the bias that comes with writing a biography about a dear friend. Given there is a part of me that wants to trust Bigelow wholeheartedly because he did edit the papers and works of Benjamin Franklin, and 
to the many who conveniently forget about the many, many tribes of Native Americans that were here long before the Europeans. It has been argued that Benjamin Franklin was the first American. So you really have to be somebody to be entrusted with such an important project like that. But either way, keeping the deep personal knowledge, yet honestly inherent bias of our key biographer in mind, let's start. Samuel Jones Tilden was born in New Lebanon, New York on February 9th, 1814. You could say young Samuel had politics in his blood. His father, Elam Tilden, was an educated man and something of a political guru. He was a big-time supporter of Andrew Jackson, something that would be instilled in his son. Interestingly enough, Andrew Jackson's vice president, who would go on to be the POTUS himself, Martin Van Buren, lived nearby and was a close friend to Elam. Van Buren would even turn to Elam for political advice from time to time, and it was a frequent house guest. Clearly being born to a father who was not only politically conscious, but sought after by leading politicians of his day for counsel, had a profound impact on Samuel growing up. It also helped that Samuel was very bright and took a shine to political discourse. One can just imagine him acting as a fly on the wall or maybe even a participant in a lively political discussion taking place in his home between his father and prominent politicians, other politically active citizens, and perhaps even Van Buren himself. And instead of zoning out or finding something else to do, he absorbed all the discussions taking place around him. As a boy, Samuel managed to get a hold of the multi-volume collected letters and papers of Thomas Jefferson. And he said, quote, I read them over again and again and thus became thoroughly imbued with Jeffersonian political ideas, unquote. Which, of course, we all had that moment when we were, like, super obsessed with Jefferson when we were, like, 11 years old, obviously. I'm just trying to imagine, um, back to that Beyblade-themed sleepover party that Mom threw for me when I was probably older than Tilden was uh, when, when he discovered this uh, Jeffersonian identity that would follow him throughout his life. But I, I suppose at times change, I guess. Although I will say that I will take Tilden on with whatever Beyblade he has as long as I have Kid Dragoon in my corner. That Beyblade was absolutely unbeatable. So Tilden may have had Jefferson, but he never knew the thrill of letting it rip. And not 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 in the gross way. But anyway, um, it's, it's, it's really difficult for you or I to compare our childhoods with Tilden's, not only because he missed out on Beyblades, but also because one of the reasons Tilden became so well-known for his intellect and the reason why he took to the writings of Thomas Jefferson from such a young age was because he wasn't like other kids. While we were fortunate enough to have our good health growing up, the same can't be said for Tilden. To quote John Bigelow, quote, When young Tilden was about three years old, he experienced a severe illness, from the consequences of which, or more probably from the effects of the drugs administered to him in the course of it, he never entirely recovered. The doctor, at his wit's end, administered laudanum, which gave temporary relief, but left him, of course, with a weakened stomach and impaired digestive apparatus for the rest of his days. He was forced, therefore, to seek his pleasures and recreations within doors, mostly in books, and in the society and conversation of his family. He scarcely ever knew intimately any young people. His illness left little of him unimpaired, but his intellect. So unfortunately, poor health would be a constant throughout the course of Tilden's life, often disrupting things like his education. But as Bigelow points out, while the other children were playing and showing off their physical prowess, Tilden stayed inside and read books and engaged in meaningful conversations with his elders. It can be argued that this type of upbringing prepared Tilden for his future success in law and politics. 
We would also be remiss if we didn't make some small mention of the fact that despite his poor help, Tilden was also a bit of a hypochondriac, perhaps understandably so, and he was often distrustful of medicinal drugs. A sliver of his hypochondria can be seen in the letters he wrote home when he left New York to attend a college prep academy in Massachusetts when he was 16. He writes, referring to the health of his stomach, I have experienced two or three relapses for the last two or three weeks, occasioned, I suspect, by an accumulation of bile. I hope to avoid another recurrence of this state of things by yet stricter attention to my diet and the use of Mead's pills. If, however, these means fail, as it is quite probable they may, I shall, upon satisfying myself to the cause of the difficulty, resort to some cathartic which has an immediate action upon the liver. I will let you know what is the effect. I shall see the doctor again when I return, and perhaps conclude to take the pills. Unquote. It's hard not to feel bad for someone with a health condition in the early 19th century. I mean, while it's amazing, and in my view, one of the more interesting medical stories to come out of the American Revolution that George Washington had his troops inoculated against smallpox, just take a look at the first aid kits carried by medics in the Civil War, and you'll see how far medicine had progressed during Tilden's lifetime. There were a lot of saws. Even the laudanum Tilden was given by his doctor when he was young is essentially just opium dissolved in alcohol. It was something that could only relieve pain temporarily at risk of turning its recipient into an opioid addict for the rest of his or her life. As a matter of fact, many veterans returned home from the Civil War addicted to opioids, which, sadly, takes us to the modern day. But Tilden didn't let his health stop him from not only reading, but writing his thoughts on the politics of the day, namely the re-election campaign of Andrew Jackson and his running mate, fellow New Yorker Martin Van Buren, who had been added to the ticket in place of former Vice President John C. Calhoun. Home from school, Tilden busied himself writing an address showing his support for the Democratic ticket over the National Republican Party nominee, Henry Clay. Tilden first showed the paper to his father, Elam. His father was so impressed that he made sure it found its way into the hands of Van Buren. Van Buren thought so highly of it that he had it signed by leading Democrats and published in the Argus. This was a huge deal for young Tilden not only because he was getting props from big figures in national politics, but also his name was in the Argus, which was the main paper that dispensed democratic ideas to New Yorkers. More importantly, what came out of this interaction was a lifelong relationship between Samuel Tilden and Martin Van Buren, so much so that in addition to consulting his father for political advice, Van Buren also went to the up-and-coming wonderkind, Sam Tilden. When Van Buren died, Tilden also played a prominent role in executing his final will, so it was plain to see the two men trusted each other and shared a lasting, lifelong friendship. Now, of course, with Van Buren being the much more experienced politician and Tilden still being just a student of politics, there was certainly plenty of give on Van Buren's end and plenty of take on Tilden's end as he absorbed Van Buren's words like a sponge and closely followed Van Buren's political career and philosophy. So with that being said, it's important then to know a little bit about the character of Martin Van Buren as he would come to play a prominent role in Tilden's personal as well as political life. And unlike Thomas Jefferson, whom Tilden idolized and sought to emulate, Van Buren was a neighbor, a friend of the family that he could consult with and not just interpret the pages upon pages of writing left behind by Jefferson, who died in 1826. Now, admittedly, Kevin and I don't know all there is to know about Van Buren mainly just his connections to Tilden as well as the Free Soil Party. 
So on the podcast today, we have a special guest, a history teacher and Van Buren enthusiast who came under our radar for her awesome Van Buren cosplays and yearly celebration posts every December 5th, which is Van Buren's birthday. So we thought, who better to bring on the podcast to tell us all about Vice President, then President, Martin Van Buren. So Katie, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you joining me as our Van Buren expert in residence. So how are you doing today? I hope all has been okay since I last saw you. And uh, maybe I'll leave you to break down our first of hopefully many Van Buren jokes during this podcast. <laughs> so things have been very okay, you know, getting ready for school, setting things up. Um, it's been a very exciting two weeks until school time starting. Good. Glad to hear it. Very uh, o- old kinder hooky then? Yes. Uh, it's been magical, just like the little magician. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so in doing our research on a young Samuel Tilden and his rise in the Democratic Party, we realized that it seems near impossible to avoid the impact that Van Buren had on him as he came of age as a politician. So what we're hoping to learn from you today is a bit about the character as well as the politics of Martin Van Buren, because admittedly, Kevin and I don't know as much as about him as we'd like to, uh, not as much as you, not nearly enough. Um, so, you know, we did a bit of research into the big picture things he was involved in. Although I'll admit that I did have to revise the script for this episode because I was spelling his name the whole time with a lowercase v, when, as you know, it is uppercase. Mm-hmm. And uh, as an English teacher, of course, that is a big deal to me. So with that being said, we're looking forward to learning from you all about our eighth president, as well as his amazing mutton chops, his impeccable style. And uh, you know, please don't feel like this is an interview. Feel free to go wherever you want to and tell us as much as we need to know about your boy. Although before um, you start, and maybe this will be a good lead into our conversation, I did want to ask you, what is it that draws you to Martin Van Buren? Because as lovers of history, you know, we all have our favorites. Um, I know for me, mine is the Roman Emperor Claudius. Just a brief tangent on him because I really can't help myself. He's an awesome guy. So he ruled the Roman Empire after the insanity of Caligula's reign. And it's likely that the only reason he survived the many executions Caligula ordered was because his family liked to tease him for disabilities he had, which experts in the modern day think may have been a form of Tourette's syndrome or cerebral palsy. But the twist is that after Caligula was assassinated, Claudius turned out to be a really great emperor for Rome at the time. So as you can see, sometimes I wish I had become a history teacher like you are. (laughs) But um, to bring it back full circle here, as a history teacher, when it comes to historical figures that stand out to you and are worth studying, writing extensively about as you have, and perhaps most importantly, the way that you cosplay him. Why Van Buren and where does your interest stem from when it comes to a president that a lot of us forget about or view as being ineffective in his time? So my interest in Martin Van Buren actually started back in high school. And it's funny now that I'm a high school teacher teaching about him. I was writing a research paper my sophomore year, US1 history class, and I had wanted to write about Irish immigration after the Great Potato Famine. That was what I wanted to do. But my history teacher told me, that's boring. Too many people have done that already. Go find something more interesting. Ironic now that I've gotten my master's degree in Irish history and focused exclusively on the famine. So in the long run, you know, it all worked out. I did get to write about the famine someday. But as a high school sophomore, you know, I had no 
real skills in research yet. So I went on Wikipedia and I clicked random article and that brought me to the panic of 1837 and I started to read about it and okay. I kept reading about it. I went to the library. I started to research Martin Van Buren in a way that I had never really researched things before. So it was really exciting to me to kind of be doing history rather than just liking history. And that's really what turned me on to Martin Van Buren. And then I continued to kind of look into him. I read this book by a great historian, Ted Widmer, and I eventually wrote my senior thesis on him for my undergraduate degree. And so Ted Widmer is kind of the guy when it comes to Van Buren, right? He's definitely who you want to go to first to learn about him? Yeah, he's pretty much the only guy. Um, Not many people are writing about Martin Van Buren. And I actually sent him an email way back in undergrad when I had like the audacity to do that, to send an email to a famous historian. And uh, he gave me some tips and he told me what to look for when I went down to the National Archives. And I was able to find some really cool letters between Martin Van Buren and Andrew Jackson. That's awesome. Yeah, because Kevin and I always talk about potentially reaching out to some of the sources that we read about, because why not? And that's so cool Mm -hmm. that you did it and you actually heard back from him. Yeah, it was looking back, I have no idea what came over me. I was like, you know, that's such a step that I probably wouldn't have done in any other case. But I said, you know, he knows about Martin Van Buren and let's be friends. (laughs) Right. And before we get too far away from the Irish potato famine, that's that's insane in my mind that your teacher thought that that was boring and that too many people were doing that. I mean, maybe that's my bias as being 50% (laughs) Irish, but uh, come on, that's an interesting topic. But I, guess, I thought it was interesting, but yeah, yeah. He, told me that he'd re- he'd read and seen too many papers that just weren't that interesting to him. And I should have known, like looking back, I was like, well, he called it the potato famine. Really, it wasn't a famine and you really don't talk about it in any class. So that's why I w- had wanted to do it. But mm-hmm. then, you know, all's well that ends well. It all worked right. out. Right. Led you to Van Buren. So what was that What was that spark, though? Because you said you were looking at Wikipedia articles. What was that spark that was like, this is somebody who is really interesting to me? So it really interested me that he was a forgotten president. Uh, we did not talk about him at all in any of the classes I had ever taken. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a little sad that a president has disappeared from the national memory. And I wanted to know why he disappeared. And I also thought he really did represent the modern America at the time. He was an immigrant. He grew up in a middle to lower class existence. He was someone who truly achieved things that he set out to do, but we don't know about him. And it it seems very weird to me that we wouldn't talk about a man who did the things that the American dream said that was what you do. I also liked that he was the first president to be born in the United States proper because all presidents before that had been born in colonies or in territories. Right. So I thought that was very interesting too. Yeah, yeah, that is very interesting. He's also the first non-British president. So that was pretty cool for me to see to kind of say like, oh, you know, we don't have to follow the same model of the old white British guy. Um, Martin Van Buren was a step in doing something different, but he was really attacked for that difference. 
Right. And he was also the first U.S. president to speak English as a second language, too, which I thought was very interesting. I'm trying to think, I mean, if there are any other presidents that can even say that, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I was kind of yeah, He was too. the only one to speak English as a second language. So he spoke Dutch primarily, mm-hmm. and he was attacked by a very xenophobic media because he had an accent and his wife had an accent. So that's also interesting to me, kind of a personal connection as well. He was very involved in New York politics and getting, you know, like the Tammany Halls, the kind of corrupt political machines, like that was what he was involved in. Mm -hmm. Over the weekend, I was looking at my great grandfather's yearbook and one of his aspirations in his small little biography was to join Tammany Hall. Wow. Oh my God, that's so interesting. First of all, that's awesome that you have that. Your great-grandfather's yearbook, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's such an awesome historical artifact. I mean, both for your family and just for history in general. That's really, really cool. So I'm glad that you started cracking that open because that's definitely where I wanted to go next. Because when you just have a cursory glance, even just like a basic Wikipedia article or even, you know, I know the Washington Post kind of did that president series where they'd give you 30 minutes about every president. Um, I was listening to it this morning just to kind of get ready for this. He really did a lot. I mean, before he reached the presidency for American politics today, as we know it, I mean, would you say that that's fair to say? He did most of his big work, both before and after his presidency. And it's such a bummer that his presidency goes so poorly, Mm -hmm. because he does do a lot that impacts us today. He is instrumental in the foundation of both the Republican and the Democratic Party. And he's also instrumental in kind of building what we see as a modern politician, as someone who's educated, someone who's a professional, because we don't realize but that wasn't the case with, you know, our founding fathers, they were all pretty well educated in general, with the exception being George Washington, they were all pretty professional in that you could say like a gentleman farmer was a professional, but they still had a rough and tumble association or they were connected with wartime. So connected with the Revolutionary War or the War of 1812. Martin Vickeren was not connected to any sort of warfare and was not seen as rough and tumble at all. So the only real saving grace that he had during his lifetime was that he was best friends with Andrew Jackson. Right. So before we get to that, can we um, kind of can, can you walk me through his rise through New York politics, what that looked like, and maybe a little more detail into how his rise through New York politics kind of changed the shape of politics in America? Sure. So um, we all know him for his presidency, but if you go all the way back to his childhood, that's really where he gets his start. So. He was born into a Dutch-speaking family in upstate New York and was raised pretty much right in the center of his father's tavern, which will help him later because he starts to learn how to talk to all different kinds of people. He was actually also born as Martin with two A's, Van Buren, because that was the Dutch way to spell Martin. Um, So that was, you know, interesting to me when I was doing research about him. But he is the first natural-born citizen president of the United States. And his parents being from the Netherlands is significant because they do bring a non-British upbringing to him. So Abraham Van Buren was his father, 
and he actually was a patriot during the American Revolution and served as the town clerk in Kinderhook, New York. And then his mother was Maria Hose or Maria Goes. There's two different spellings. Um, and she actually had three children before she married Abraham. So he had three half siblings, which are really only important because his half brother, Johannes Van Allen, was a future U.S. representative. Or Johannes Van Allen was the first marriage. The son's name was James Van Allen. So he has kind of politics in his blood. His family members are all connected in politics. And then he is part of the children that Maria has with Abraham. So she has five more children with him. Then Martin and his siblings, they're raised speaking Dutch, and they really only learn English while they're attending primary school. But it's significant that he's born and raised in this environment because he interacts with many different people, many different social groups. And he uses that experience when he joins the Albany political machine, which is kind of like the feeder political machine for the bigger Tammany Hall. And then after he leaves formal education, he starts to apprentice at the office of Peter Sylvester, who was a very famous Federalist in New York. He will be pretty closely connected to the Founding Fathers, and he will be a member of the House of Representatives representing New York later on. When he started this apprenticeship, he was not the image that he becomes later. He kind of wore rough spun clothing of a tavern worker, probably homemade clothing. And the Sylvesters are actually the first group that kind of corrects him and changes his style so that it better fits what they're trying to achieve. So he starts to focus a lot more on his personal appearance and his clothing because of the Sylvesters. And he mm. becomes incredibly body conscious and kind of body aware. Uh, there is a rumor that he wore a corset to give him a more felt figure. We don't know if that is true or not. I would assume it's partially true and maybe it's not a full corset, but some sort of body shaping undergarment that he probably did wear because Peter Sylvester was pretty intense with his criticism. He also starts to try to move beyond how people see him as the son of a tavern owner and become an integral cog in the political machine of New York because of Sylvester's influence. He also spends a year working for William Van Ness, who was a political lieutenant of Aaron Burr. So he knew Aaron Burr. He probably worked in proximity to him as well. Wow, so, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's all his education. And he that changes him like that makes him become the Van Buren that I know and love. Um, mm -hmm. Then he falls in love with Hannah Hose, who is the daughter of his first cousin, um, but they are childhood sweethearts. So I don't know if that makes it more interesting or less interesting. She also spoke Dutch. She didn't really speak English and together they had five children. So Abraham named after his father, John Martin Jr., who's his third son, but named Martin Jr. Winfield, who is named after Winfield Scott, the general and Smith Thompson. Hannah ends up dying at the age of 35 from tuberculosis, and Martin Van Buren never remarries. He says that she is the love of his life. He will never again find someone that will fill the shoes of Hannah Hose. So when he's president, he asks his daughter-in-law, the wife of Abraham, whose name is Sarah Angelica, Angelica Singleton Van Buren, to serve as first lady. 
And she's actually the youngest woman ever to act as the White House hostess. And it's kind of interesting, too, because she's related to Dolly Madison, who steps in for Thomas Jefferson when he takes office as president. Oh, wow. That is, mm-hmm. re- that is really interesting. And, and of course, I, I mean, I don't know how you can't love Dolly Madison. She's just fantastic. Very, very interesting figure. Oh, yeah. Um, she's the best. <laughs> and I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I was going to mention that fact that he was technically, well, not technically, he was a bachelor when he was in the White House, which mm-hmm. you know is, is pretty uncommon. Was, was he, he was probably, the, he was the first bachelor ever to be in the White House. Is that correct? So he was the first bachelor long-term to enter the White House. Thomas Jefferson um, uh, is a widower, so he is a bachelor as well. But Martin Van Buren was a widower for the majority of his adult life. So she dies in 1819 and he lives very, very long. He doesn't die until 1862. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you brought up a lot of those early points in his childhood because a lot of those, you know, we are trying in our second season to profile um, Samuel Tilden. A lot of the things that you said reminded me of ways that Tilden was brought up. You know, he had a father who was very politically active. You know, we could say that politics also ran in his blood. He had these mentor figures like Van Buren did who brought him up, kind of helped sculpt him into the political figure that he would be in the future. Although I guess it's kind of interesting because Tilden would bring down, you know, Tammany Hall, which you were saying Van Buren had a big role in kind of establishing machine Mm -hmm. politics in New York, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, they kind of diverged a little bit in that case. But yeah, Yeah. they grew up in very similar ways. And they do meet the same people and they're in the same circles. So you have to imagine that him going against Tammany Hall was a very difficult decision for him to do. But yet in the end, Van Buren still had Tilden be the Mm -hmm. manager of his his estate, which is which is kind of bizarre, I guess, if they did diverge ultimately. Um there was there had still had to be that trust there in Mm -hmm. order for him to do something like that. And Van Buren as well only had a couple of very close, close friends. He was very friendly in general, but you could tell that in terms of people just reading his letters, he felt very personally close to Andrew Jackson. He felt very personally close to Samuel Tilden. So maybe that also influenced it. He could have also been afraid that his sons were going to sell his estate because it was a pretty large gentleman farmer estate up in New York. Mm -hmm. So perhaps that's why he picked Samuel Tilden because they were friends till the end. Right. And seeing that estate, I mean, I only saw it um, through a C-SPAN documentary. Have you been there? I mean, it, it looks beautiful. I have, yes. I have gone there twice and it's fantastic. You know, you can sit outside and kind of absorb the majesty of it. He was a very active horseback rider and a very active farmer in that he's very interested in the science behind farming. So he uh, tried to create new crops up in Kinderhook. He was using different strains of crops that he had already grown to see if they were drought resistant or weather resistant, things like that. It was very cool to see. And now I guess the question that kind of comes up when we talk about the estate of any given president from that time period, uh, did Van Buren own slaves? He did not. No. He did not. Okay. Some people say that was 
due to his upbringing of being kind of lower middle class to middle class, but he is very actively involved in the anti-slavery movement later on, um, not mm -hmm. necessarily as an abolitionist, but as someone who does not want to see the expansion of slavery into politics. Right. So, and we'll, yeah, we'll definitely dive deep into the Free Soil mm -hmm. Party because that's very interesting. And of course, he was the the, the nominee, the, the candidate for that party when they when they did run it. Yeah. So even I mean, going back to the very beginning, you know, he's involved in pretty big decisions, even as a lowly lawyer. And then he becomes the New York Attorney General, and then he becomes a state senator. One thing from his very early life is that. He prosecutes the very first murder for hire case in the state of New York, which I thought was super huh. interesting. Yeah, it was the murder of Richard Jennings in December 1818. So it was a group of people who conspired to murder Jennings after losing a court battle for a piece of land. So, but they told people that they wanted to murder him. So mm -hmm. it became pretty obvious that that was what was going on and he prosecuted them. And going back to talking about the, the different circles that Van Buren and Tilden ran in, it's interesting that you said that Van Buren knew Aaron Burr because, of course, we know that Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton tried the first murder trial. Is that correct in, in New York? Mm -hmm. Or is that the whole country, the first murder trial in the country? That is a good question. It a lot might... of my knowledge goes back to like the Hamilton, so I'm trying to like <laughs> sing the song in my head from the – I think it's the nonstop is the name of the song where they talk about that. This is the very first murder trial of our very new nation. Yeah, I think it was in the nation, but we could I we could fact so. check that at some point. He oh. was, I mean, super involved with kind of building up a base. And then once he is elected to represent New York in the U.S. Senate, that's really when he jumps into federal campaigns and federal arenas. Because up until then, he was really just focused on New York. Um, he was a de facto leader of Tammany Hall. He was instrumental in building the Erie Canal at the time and expanding the rights to vote to all white men in New York rather than just property owners. So like him getting elected in 1821 to U.S. Senate, that's really what pushes him into people paying attention on the federal level. Okay. And so before we move on to his role in Jackson's administration. Is there anything else that we should know about Van Buren before we get to that point? So he was actually um, involved within the corrupt bargain as well. So in 1821, when he's elected, he's appointed to be the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee. So he had some pull even from the very beginning as a junior senator. And in the election of 1824, which people know as the corrupt bargain, to give like a two sentence summary, four people ran for president and mm -hmm. nobody got enough votes to actually become president because you need the majority. So the corrupt bargain allegedly was that Andrew Jackson claims that John Quincy Adams gave some sort of promise to earn enough votes in order to become president because once you don't get enough electoral college votes, it actually goes through Congress and you have to be voted on through Congress. And I think it was a crazy number, like over 10 votes had happened and it was still a tie. Wow. So he officially becomes the winner. He's now the president. And 
interestingly enough, in all of this drama, so there were four candidates, Van Buren backed the worst of them, William Crawford, who suffers a stroke and he finishes dead last, which is probably not the best way to say it since he suffered a stroke, but right. he does not get the vote, but he escapes all the dramatics of the corrupt bargain. So the three more famous candidates were obviously John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, but also Henry Clay, which we know is kind of the mover and shaker of the 1800s. He's the one who swings all the votes towards Adams compared to Jackson, because he saw Jackson as an imminent threat to the future of America. So that's when the era of good feelings kind of starts, because there's only one official political party. We know that good feelings were not common, and people were still very snippy, just like they are today in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but he escapes kind of all of the stain because he doesn't back the three big candidates. He backs Crawford, which everyone forgets about. Huh. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose now, so we have a Van Buren who is dressed to the nines. Um, I heard one of his outfits was wearing the color yellow with the color green, mm-hmm. um, which I'm, I'm okay with. That was the colors uh, for my high school. So, you know, that gets a, a free pass for me and I'm sure he looked really snazzy and he finds himself involved in Andrew Jackson's rise to power as well as in his administration. And I think there's a whole bunch of rabbit holes we can go down in this one. And I'm hoping to explore a bunch of them, Um, perhaps maybe ending with the petticoat affair and uh, Calhoun's kind of demise, Mm -hmm. but where where would be a good place to start with that? Uh, Him getting involved with Andrew Jackson, because that of course will lead to him being the vice president and then kind of the heir apparent after Andrew Jackson finishes his two terms in the White House. So in 1828, he supports Andrew Jackson for president because he kind of saw where the winds were blowing. He knows that John Quincy Adams is not going to win a second term. Andrew Jackson spends the entirety of Adams' term pretty much campaigning against him. So Van Buren starts to make these political friends and alliances amongst Jackson's inner circle because he's not quite in that inner circle yet. So he's making connections with the future Vice President John C. Calhoun, Senator John Randolph, and Senator Thomas Hart Benton, who is most famous because he's the architect of Manifest Destiny. So even though his name is not super famous, what he does is very famous. And within that year, he also kind of throws his support after Jackson is elected behind the Tariff of Abominations which in 1828 is just called the Tariff of 1828. Now we know it as the Tariff of Abominations. Because he supports that tariff, Jackson starts to pay attention to him. But he's kind of saved from any of the blowback from the tariff because he's not vocal in public spheres about it. So this becomes a real theme within his political life Time after time, he's able to escape many of the negatives of his political actions until he wasn't, which is the Panic of 1837. Right. And is this what leads to him being referred to as, um, you might have to correct me here, he was referred to as a a wizard of some sort? Was one of his nicknames? The Little Magician, right. He was called the Little Magician or the Red Fox of Kinderhook because he was very wily. Right, right. And he was kind of able to broker deals, right, with people, you know, Mm -hmm. all over the political spectrum, right? And just kind of, he just knew how to be a smooth political operator. Mm -hmm. 
And at this point, he runs for governor of New York, which a lot of people are kind of surprised, like, why would you leave the Senate to run for governor in some sort of federal hierarchy? You know, one seems higher than the other. But he's hoping to capitalize on Jackson's popularity with the new Democratic Party. Um, And he wins pretty easily in 1829. But he resigns after 43 days to become Jackson's secretary of state. So this is like the shortest tenure of any governor in New York. And a lot of people see it that it was just a stepping stone. And that's when he becomes the secretary of state. So you're saying he kind of knew what he was doing. You know, he wasn't in it necessarily to serve New York in the capacity of governor, but to advance his own political interests. That's correct. Wow. Pretty so smart. in this role, yeah, he's really smart. Um, yeah. And in this role, he does a lot of international negotiation, which a lot of people don't connect with him or don't even connect with history in the 1800s. We don't realize that in 1830, you know, we have a thriving relationship with the Ottoman Empire. Like that is something that is happening um, because unfortunately we kind of see American history as a vacuum. So as Secretary of State, he's negotiating these treaties and settles some long-standing claims against France and won reparations for property that had been seized during the Napoleonic Wars. He opens an agreement with the British to start trade with the British West Indies. He settles a treaty with the Ottoman Empire to gain access to the Black Sea. He starts to negotiate borders between Maine and New Brunswick, Oregon and Canada, and Mexico and the United States, which, you know, in 20 years later, Texas will become a huge sticking point for American politics. Yeah, yeah. And I gotta, I gotta be honest. I mean, I'm just, I'm fascinated by that position of Secretary of State, especially the ones in, you know, American political history who are just so productive. And I think I knew maybe two of those things that you mentioned that he did mm-hmm. as as Secretary of State. Um, that, that, yeah, that thing with the Ottoman Empire. I, I'd be interested to see how many of our listeners knew about that. I mean, I, I think we often forget just how long the Ottoman Empire was around. I mean, we usually mm-hmm. throw them back maybe with what the taking of uh, Constantinople, you know, way back when, but uh, we just don't think how long of a, of a life the Ottomans had. And the fact that people learned about the Ottomans, you know, pretty recently in time, if you go back to my great grandfather, he probably learned about the Ottomans in history class as a contemporary nation to the United States, because it's not until World War One that they truly give their final dying day and turn into Turkey. Right, right. Okay. So at this point in Van Buren's life, this is when the petticoat affair really happens. And this is All a right. defining moment in Jackson's first term, a scandal that is much longer than a lot of people assume. It's about two years of bullying <laughs> between 1829 and 1831, where the wife of John C. Calhoun, who is named Floridi, she basically embarks on a campaign against Peggy Eaton, who is the wife of the Secretary of War, John Eaton. And the majority of the wives in Jackson's cabinet sided with the Calhouns because they disapproved of Peggy Eaton's comportment and felt that she did not, quote, fulfill the moral standards of a cabinet wife. And basically, they meant that she had opinions and she talked about them. And they kind of characterized her as, for lack of a better term, 
a loose woman. That's what they're kind of throwing at her. They put out these snide little comments to newspapers. They would sponsor political cartoons about her. They would refuse to speak to her or even send invitations to her for official state events where the wives were expected to go. So it would look bad if she didn't go. And they even went as far as ostracizing her husband as well. So the men were also involved in this petticoat affair. They just don't really get any of the consequences of this bullying of poor Peggy Eaton. Wow. And so how do we look at that now? Because you, you said that she was a woman who during her time had the audacity to have opinions about things. How, how do historians such as yourself look at this now, this woman, Peggy Eaton? So I look at Peggy Eaton kind of with a lot of empathy. Like I understand why she was attacked at the time. A lot of historians do not pay any attention to what she actually thought of herself. So we've been calling her Peggy Eaton. She actually went by Margaret and has stated in interviews that she never liked the name Peggy and the wives used Peggy to further denigrate her. So she was normally called Margaret, but historians kind of ignore all of those interviews and they just go by Peggy Eaton, which was the bullying name that she was given. Wow. Yeah, and the moral standards that were the issue in all of this is that she married a man too quickly after a marriage ended. And that was like so shocking at the time because there were allegations that Margaret or Peggy kind of got involved with John Eaton before the death of her husband. There's no evidence for this, but historians tend to tell the dominant story. So unfortunately, Margaret or Peggy has kind of continued to be attacked over time by the repeating of this rumor from the Calhouns. Wow. And I'm sure if you flip things, you know, there's a, there, there's absolutely a double standard there that were, were she a man, you know, doing that with a woman, I mean, it, it just wouldn't have made the same amount of waves, probably not even close. And it was expected for men to get married pretty quickly, especially to have children and, and to have someone to take care of the home. And Margaret, she was married to a man named John Timberlake. Another part of the moral standards that she allegedly broke was that he was a little bit older than her. He was about 22 years older, but they had three children. Um, they were married for a pretty long time at the, you know, at the time. She was 17 when they got married. So obviously looking back, the moral standards of our time, you can't really cross apply them, but you do have to remember that she is 17. So a lot of her choices are coming from a place of someone whose brain is still developing. She meets John Eaton while she's married to Timberlake, and he actually becomes friends with both her and her husband. Then John Timberlake dies at sea about 12 years into their marriage. And at the time, they actually hadn't seen each other for two years because it was pretty common for him to go on these multi-year service voyages to Europe. So he was in the Navy? He was in the Navy, I think, Um, but it seemed like he was more kind of a a man about the sea. So he would go on these merchant voyages and he was pretty well known. So maybe he had a little bit of a political aspect to it, but he just seemed to be someone that traveled a lot. So after his death, nine months later, she marries her old friend, John Eaton, who was friends with both of them. And because it was 
within a year, that's where the rumors started. So traditionally, the normal mourning period would be about a year, and she didn't wait that long. And it was rumored that her ex-husband, or not her ex-husband, but her first husband, committed suicide because of her relationship with Eaton. But that does not historically hold up because he was friends with Eaton first. So this is just untrue. Okay. And you mentioned the name Timberlake. Um, no connection to Justin, I'm assuming. No connection to NSYNC. I don't think so, okay. but that would be very cool. Um, that would be really also- cool. <laughs> so I'd say, yeah. I mean, it, it turned out well, like down the pike. I mean, it, he's made some great songs. That's true. But we also have the historical like autopsy report that says he died of pneumonia uh, while on the boat. So historians are just ignoring that part when they perpetuate this rumor. And you said she was 17, you know, when this was going on. I mean, it's hard, like, it's hard to begin to imagine. Like you said, the brain isn't fully formed, but also the fact that um, you said he died at sea, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, so Moby Dick is my favorite book. And every year I try to go to uh, the Moby Dick Marathon, which is where the book begins, which is in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And if you're lucky and you get your tickets ahead of time, you can go into the Siemens Bethel, which is where the people in the town would have mass. And you can see on the walls preserved are, you know, some of the memorials to some of these sailors who were just, you know, we don't know what happened to them, but we know that they're lost at sea. You know, maybe they were harpooning a whale and their boat got dragged off out of sight and the main ship could not find them. You know, we just know that they died and there's just, you get no sense of closure with that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she was so young and having to come to grips with the fact that there was no closure and what was she going to do? Yeah, I, I can really see how you develop a lot of empathy for for a character like this. Um, so you said this is a two year long scandal. So how does it how does it come to a head? How does it resolve itself? Is that is there any sense of resolution, or does this just carry on in its in its ugly way until it kind of fizzles out? So unfortunately, there is no real resolution, but there is kind of a peak here where because all of the other wives get involved with the Calhouns in bullying the Eatons. Jackson attempts to step in and he tries to alleviate alleviate the bullying and um, the ostracization and he tries to force the Calhouns to invite the Eatons places. So this is a truly significant moment in American history because even though it sounds like mean girls, this is the moment where Calhoun loses his federal stage because later he becomes only a sectional American politician, obviously getting involved in the Confederacy because he is removed from the cabinet when he refuses to involve the Eatons in social events. So Jackson will fire him and he becomes a sectional politician rather than a national politician. And through this entire drama, Van Buren was quoted as being very kind to Margaret or Peggy. And this is where Jackson will switch his favor from Calhoun, who was his vice president in the first term, to Van Buren, who is the president in the second term. So between Van Buren and Jackson, they come up with this plan where Van Buren is going to resign from the cabinet and allow Jackson to then remove all of the anti-Eaton bullying circle. And Calhoun is not going to rerun as his vice president. He wasn't asked to rerun. And that's where he moves back down south and he does not continue as a national figure. 
and he instead becomes the hero of the cell. And in the downward spiral of Calhoun, isn't there also a moment too where Van Buren is nominated to be the uh, min- is it the minister to Great Britain? And then when he gets there, it, it turns out that that wasn't the case, and Calhoun had something to do with it. So he was the ambassador, the minister to Great Britain for truly a hot minute. And then he's brought back because Jackson needs him more stateside. Calhoun wanted to get him out of Jackson's ear. But at that point, Calhoun has lost so much prestige in Jackson's eyes that Jackson is not going to fall for this. And so now we've reached a point now where Van Buren is the the vice president. So is there anything significant that we should know about that point where he's, he's serving directly under Andrew Jackson, as they say, he's a heartbeat away from becoming the president himself? So this is where Van Buren really starts to jump into a lot of political cartoons as one of the subjects. Before this, he wasn't really paid attention to. He kind of slipped from scandal to scandal without anyone noticing that he was there. One of the more famous political cartoons from the Petticoat Affair is called Rat Leaving a Falling House, where Jackson's advisors and cabinet are given this anthropomorphic rat-like bodies with their human heads as they flee from Jackson's falling house or his crumbling administration during the first term. Unlike the other figures, Van Buren is being kind of held by Jackson, who's stepping on his tail, preventing him from leaving this crumbling administration. And while rats are not inherently associated with like masculinity or femininity, you start to see this connection of Van Buren is not a machismo president. Van Buren is not a masculine president. Van Buren is instead connected with the image of like the thieving and untrustworthy rat, which, you know, when you're writing a creative story or a short story, like rats have specific allusions and connections. And the fact that they're also associated with the bubonic plague or the black death. So this is not really consistent with the strength of the frontiersman of Andrew Jackson. Instead, it's the animal image that kind of starts a foundation of attack against Martin Van Buren. And with this particular political cartoon, they printed over 10,000 copies of it and they dispersed those 10,000 within Philadelphia within only a fortnight. So wow. it was that's pretty huge. aggressive. Also depicted as a rat in other political cartoons with one of the more famous one being Smoking Him Out, where he is a rat fleeing from a burning barn. Yeah. And listeners, we'll make sure to put these political cartoons up when we release the episode because they really are interesting. And um, they they come to my mind pretty fresh because I had just read your your college paper about it where you did a lot of focus on the ways he was depicted in political cartoons. Totally just lost my train of thought. Oh, um, yeah, how he was depicted in political cartoons and, and as well as this idea of him just not being seen as the super hyper-masculine president and being railed for it. And these attacks, I think, come from John C. Calhoun and other pretty famous Southern politicians because they were the frontiersmen. I mean, Calhoun was very much seen as someone similar to Andrew Jackson. If you look at any picture of Calhoun, you would not want to mess with that man. He's not a bad, only because he's, yeah, he's a bad dude. He looks a little bit out there. He's intense. Um, and you can only assume that his wife was 
equally as intense when she was bullying poor Margaret Eans. But between the two of them, they were the original power couple uh, when they were kind of orchestrating all of these attacks on the Eatons. And, you know, just to give kind of a closure for poor Margaret, her life doesn't end super nicely. Um, she marries a third time after John Eaton dies in 1856. She marries someone in their mid-20s when she's 59 named Antonio Gabriel Bucci-Ghani, I think. And then seven years later, he steals the majority of her fortune and runs away to Europe with her 17-year-old granddaughter, Emily Randolph. That's awful. So, yeah, it's not a happy story for poor Margaret. Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate that historians still kind of focus on her as being the, the point of contention when really, you know, she was, she was just there. Um, I have a quote from historian John uh, Marzalik, who says, she did not know her place. She forthrightly spoke up about anything that came to her mind. Shocking, I know. Um, even topics of which women were supposed to be ignorant. She thrust herself into the world in a manner inappropriate for a woman. Accept her and society was in danger of disruption. Accept this uncouth, impure, forward, worldly woman and the wall of virtue and morality would be breached and society would have no further defenses against the forces of frightening change. Margaret Eaton was not that important in herself. It was what she represented that constituted the threat. Proper women had no choice. They had to prevent her acceptance into society as part of their defense of that society's morality. So here we have- That's fascinating. That's a very fascinating quote and take on that whole thing. Yeah, he's doubling down on the Calhoun's point of view, saying, had they not attacked Marguerite Eaton, the entirety of Washington polite society would have crumbled because she had opinions. And that to a certain degree, if, if I'm interpreting the quote correctly, that it fell down to the very women in that society to kind of perpetuate the things that were holding them back from advancing their own interests in society. That's correct. So That's, we see it wow. over and over again where women are thrust into this position of policing other women. I mean, we will see it probably most obviously with the female-led campaign against the Equal Rights Amendment and the propaganda that surrounds this campaign of, well, we have to protect, quote unquote, our way of life. And that's why we must work against the Equal Rights Amendment. We even see it today where many of the anti-women's rights organizations and I say anti-women's rights organizations in kind of a narrow fashion, but I also mean organizations that are working against uh, the trans community, the queer community. They're often led by women who have been stuck into this internalized misogyny of protecting the way in which they were brought up. So we see it throughout the entirety of American history and even world history. Right. I think I even remember seeing some sort of a documentary. Um, I think it was about like, evangelical Christians, mm -hmm. where a lot of it, like you said, I mean, it was led by the women. They were the ones who were saying that, you know, women shouldn't have place in society doing things that quote men are supposed to do, like mm -hmm. having a place in government, doing things that aren't kind of keeping your mouth shut, keeping the house clean and having babies. And what was interesting about this documentary, and I, I wish I could recall the name, is a lot of these women wound up coming out of this movement, realizing that they were used and mm -hmm. feeling horrible about what they did to 
like you said, not just the female community, but the gay community, the trans community as well. Yeah, it's definitely a persistent theme when you look at social history in the United States, where people are encouraged to work against their own interests for the interests of the majority group or the group that benefits the most from being in power. So what I think is, and I think maybe you should be the person to even write this book. I think we need to have a book where Margaret Eaton is plucked out of history, given a fair shot, have her story told, you know, how it happened, how it must've been for her and kind of maybe use her as like the backbone just to talk about all of these different themes that you just talked about. I think that, I feel like that'd be an awesome book to read. I would definitely read it. Someday. Yeah. Poor Margaret. She gets justice in my personal history class, but I would love to see her get justice everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So we got Van Buren into the vice presidency. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, like you said, we talked about uh, the fact that a lot of the really important things that he did politically that he, he really should receive his time of day for historically took place before he was president. How about we dive into his presidency and how it, in less words, really didn't go the way that he had hoped. And how I, I think it's fair to say in a lot of ways, he was cleaning up the mess of Jackson, implementing some pretty unpopular things. I mean, not a lot of people know that the Trail of Tears was more implemented during his administration than Jackson's. And then, of course, um, ending us out in the Free Soil Party. So Van Buren, as a vice president, does kind of with Andrew Jackson, and he is seen as the heir apparent, but there was real fear that the South would not vote for him. So he's the Democratic nominee in 1836, and the biggest group working against him was the Whig Party. At the time, the Whigs are not strong enough or united enough to run one candidate against him. They actually run three candidates against him, Hugh Lawson White of Tennessee, Daniel Webster of Massachusetts, who becomes a hugely influential figure later on, and William Henry Harrison of Indiana, which we all know of the infamous shortest president and the shortest term president in American history. He was the one that gave himself pneumonia, right? Because he gave his inaugural on such a a cold day and just would not uh, step inside because of how cold Mm -hmm. it was. And it was the longest speech as well. So what a guy thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, he was a general. He didn't need a coat, according to him. Um, And then he eventually does end up passing away. But with Van Buren, he does have a lot of insecurity with his voting base because of the Whig attacks against him. He knew that Jackson could and would depend on the votes in the South throughout his entire political career, with the exception of the Carolinas. And from the outside, it should have been a pretty simple handover for these votes to go to Van Buren. However, he was the outsider. I mean, the South was very much against the political career of Van Buren. They were against how he dressed. They were against how he presented himself. So to try and convince Jackson's former supporters to support him, he has to kind of compromise on a lot of his political beliefs. So in order to get those votes, he opposes abolitionism. And he states that politically, he is in support of maintaining slavery in the states where it was already legal. And this 
of course, would juxtapose with this future leadership of the Free Soil Party in the kind of sunset of his political career. Personally, we know that he believed slavery to be immoral, but in his political career, he does state that the Constitution supports the existence of slavery, and that's how he's able to get the votes in the South. So in 1836, he does end up winning the election, and he establishes officially the second party system. He retains many of Jackson's appointees and supporters. He even takes Jackson's uh, recommendation with him as vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, even though he didn't really support him as a vice president. He also continues Jackson's tradition of informal cabinet meetings, uh, which just means cabinet meetings that were not held officially with official records and instead in people's homes where they can kind of talk off the record. But unfortunately, we don't really talk about any of those things because of both the way in which the Whigs will continue to attack him, but also because of the Panic of 1837. So it's only two months into his presidency where state banks in New York run out of hard currency reserves and refuse to convert to paper money refused to convert paper money into gold or silver. And before we dive into that, um, I I apologize for cutting you off. Um, You mentioned that in many ways, Van Buren was responsible for creating a two-party system. Can you go into a little more detail about that? Because I know that is one of the big achievements that we can kind of hang on him. So during his lifetime, he's responsible for this second-party system truly because uh, the Whigs oppose him so vehemently. And his existence galvanizes them into one united front rather than you know the sectional Whig parties that they were so there was a Whig party that really was focused on the west on the south and on the north van buren inspires them all to join together and eventually get william henry harrison elected in the next election in 1840. okay so it's all we we can almost say that he didn't necessarily create it but force the the hand of the Whigs to unite against him because they, they hated him so much? Correct. Okay. And then eventually, uh, because of his work with the Free Soil Party, that does get absorbed into the Republican Party. So he has a hand in the formation of both the Jacksonian Democrats, which become the Democrats today in many different iterations and evolutions and obviously not the same party, but he also has a hand in the creation of the Republican Party. And that's so interesting to me, too, because thinking on Tilden, too, I mean, he was involved in the Free Soil Party, but then came out of it a Democrat, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting, you know, since you're saying, like, we know the Free Soil Party kind of got more more involved with Republicanism for obvious reasons. Yeah, so he is instrumental in the formation of these parties, even though both parties distance themselves from him and don't remember them today. That's interesting. Thank you for going into that. So I apologize before um, I went into that and asked you that, um, you were talking about the Panic of 1837. Yes. So my original entrance to Martin Van Buren history and lore was the Panic of 1837. (laughs) And we know, you know, this panic was not caused by Van Buren. There's not a lot a president can do within two months to start a recession it's really due to Jackson's anti-bank policies and his policy of the specie curricular, which Van Buren didn't really support, 
but he supported Jackson, so he threw his support behind old Jackson policies. So instead of fixing the Jacksonian ideology about banking, he blames the collapse on, quote, greedy American and foreign business and financial institutions, specifically like Nicholas Biddle, who is the big enemy number one of Andrew Jackson because he is the last president of the Second Bank of the United States. If you're ever interested, Nicholas Biddle cartoons are very interesting and very funny. Um, okay, I'll check those out. They're putting out a ton of paper just attacking each other. And it's, it's really interesting to see, especially considering people today say, you know, politics have gotten out of hand, out of control. This is what we've always done in American politics. Yeah, it's so funny how we forget. I mean, it was brutal. Even going back to Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. spending his whole vice presidency just trying to character assassinate John Adams through the papers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it was always like this. We just didn't always have Twitter to do it. Exactly. And you could say cartoons of yesteryear are very similar to what Twitter does today with the different memes about Dark Brandon and Trump and all of these kind of crazy images that we have of Joe Biden with lasers coming out of his eyes versus Trump as a WWE wrestler. You know, that's kind of what they're doing in the 1800s. But they're just handing out pieces of paper rather than tweeting these. But I'm confused because I thought that Trump flag where he um, had six-pack abs, a belt of ammo around his body, two giant machine guns, and a dragon behind him with fire. I I thought that that was like a candid photo. Oh, yeah. That was uh, from his last vacation. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure because people are telling me that one isn't real and I'm trying to correct them. Yeah. And the dark Brandon uh, with the lasers coming out of Joe Biden's eyes, that's why he wears sunglasses all the time. Right. I don't. Yeah. He's he's a mutant, obviously. I mean, he used, he used to be Cyclops in the X-Men. Exactly. These little known facts. I mean, people just need to brush up on their history more. You know, there's, there's no excuse. <laughs> so um, going back to our favorite meme character, Martin Van Buren, mm-hmm. the poor guy kind of lived through one of the roughest recessions up until the Great Depression in the 1920s. Like this is horrific to the average American. So it's made worse because both the Democrats and the Whigs start to work against him in Congress. So he really can't even do anything. He tries to modify and change the financial system, but nothing is getting passed, nothing is getting through. So to the public, his lack of observable response really damages his popularity and the perception of him as someone who can get things done like Andrew Jackson. You know, he was seen as pretty weak. And if we go to a gender analysis, pretty effeminate because he quote unquote can't get things done compared to the swift acting and decisive Jackson and later William Henry Harrison, who were seen as much more masculine and much more machismo in the 1800s. Right. He just doesn't have that rough and tumble frontier warrior vibe to Mm -hmm. him. Yeah, he definitely doesn't. And the political cartoons don't help him. So he's being associated with rats. He's also being associated with marsupials. That was a really interesting one when I was reading your paper. Yeah. Can you get into that, the marsupial one and and your analysis of that as well? Sure. So um, if we look at like 
marsupials and their body structure. In general, only female marsupials have a pouch in which they can carry their young. So if we go to pictures of Martin Van Buren, he is portrayed as a female marsupial carrying children in his pouch. It's called an interesting family. And he is sitting with his allies on his stomach, in his stomach. And regardless of the animal aspects of this image, it's also important to look closer at the pouch and the figures within it. So in the pouch, you see Calhoun in there, even though Calhoun has allegedly been distant from national politics. So you can kind of see him like holding his political cronies close to him or the people he's trying to impress close to him. So this really does a more nuanced jab at both Martin Van Buren as the foppish feminine president of the time, but they also allege him to be the mother of the Democratic Party rather than the father of the Democratic Party. And this is, of course, playing into gender roles and gender norms of the time, but he's carrying his children in his pouch, Calhoun being one of his children, even though Calhoun was older than him, and mm -hmm. nurturing and raising them to be the Democratic leaders that will change American history moving forward. So while the founding fathers are responsible for the conception of our party system, of our federal system, they're not associated with the maternal role. Van Buren is associated with the maternal role to construct a system that would thrive. So kind of contrasting it with the overtly masculine and paternal political figures of Washington and Jackson, now we have the maternal figure of Van Buren, and of course, because of toxic masculinity and harmful gender norms, maternalism and motherhood were not seen as positive elements to associate with a male politician. Which is a little bit wild, because as you were talking about that cartoon and some of the meaning in, in 2022, I'm almost thinking, wow, that, that seems like a bit of a compliment to associate him as the mother of this party and the mentor of all these politicians who would go on to do all these things to shape American politics in the years to come. But like you're saying, you know, with gender roles being what they were and toxic masculinity being what it was then, of course, it's an insult. And part of it, too, was he was never associated with violence and aggression, which looking back, we say that's a great thing. He's not associated with violence and aggression. Like mm -hmm. Andrew Jackson is pulling old bullets out of his body throughout the rest of his life oh, because of all of the battles he's in. Uh -huh. But to people of the 1800s, that was a positive thing. So, you know, prior presidents gave off this kind of aggressive or warlike air as the notorious old hickory. And even mm -hmm. someone like John Quincy Adams, who isn't really associated with uh, aggression or violence, he is associated with war. So he's associated with the War of 1812. So that does kind of help him out a little bit. And people always forget that during his lifetime, John Quincy Adams was not liked the way that he's liked today. So he faced a lot of similar attacks as Martin Van Buren. But instead, Van Buren was very private with his life, and that doesn't help him. He never remarries after Hannah dies, so that doesn't help him either. Mm -hmm. You don't really have this outward display of manhood in terms of being married to a woman, the compulsory heterosexuality at the time. And he becomes effectively 
neutered with both the lack of a female companion and political jabs from the Whigs and the Southern Democrats. So he's lacking in two of the most important aspects of being a man in the 1800s, both aggression and sexual power. And it becomes very easy for the American public to attack him and also see his lack of a response to the Panic of 1837 as playing within this foppish feminine lack of machismo that he's putting out. And this is the easiest area for his opponents to attack. So he's painted as the European other and language is really centered around a mixture of the pendant and the dandy. You know, dandy of course being an attack on his sexuality and perhaps intentionally he kind of plays into this and this is why I really like Van Buren because he's very hyper aware of how people see him and he plays with that imagery. So he plays with how people are making fun of him and he leans into it. So, you know, he is someone who is very body conscious. So he only dresses very, very nicely and he leans into it, even though his political advisors are telling him, you know, be seen in more normal clothes be seen in clothes of a tavern owner he says no he doesn't want to do that and if we look at the very early history of photographs because that's coming up during the same time of him mm -hmm. we can see how he wanted the public to see him rather than paintings where you know a painting can be made to look wonderful and great um, not necessarily what george washington actually looked like in that painting mm -hmm. but with a photograph you know, Van Buren was there. He posed the photograph. He saw it immediately after. He took multiple prints. So Matthew Brady is a big photographer of the time and kind of the father of photography in the 1800s. And within uh, one of the texts that I really draw from, Painting Men's Portraits by Joseph Singer, it's important to see how Matthew Brady, Van Buren, and the different people working with him focus on his image within the photograph. So when we look at portraits, when you lower the artist's eye or move the camera down to look slightly up at the subject, you are doing a very deliberate thing for the audience. So you're lengthening the subject and you're making them more important or more significant. So Van Buren actually gets Brady to lengthen him in all of his official portraiture making him seem not quite as small so that he can kind of attack a lot of the rumors about him and to work against Whig propaganda against him saying he's too small or too short, which is funny considering William Henry Harrison is shorter than him. But, you know, that's it's neither here nor there. And it's also important to note, like, he uses this to see himself and we can see how he sees himself. So when we look at Van Buren in portraiture, he stares at the viewer and he makes direct eye contact with you. And while this may convey determination or resignation after a long fight in politics, the scientific effects of eye contact stimulates memory and facilitates recall. And we know he's very well educated, so we know that he does a lot of things on purpose. So in art, when you pose a subject with eye contact, it's an alleged indication of honesty and integrity, which is something that people would continually attack him on, you know, being associated with the rat, being untrustworthy, being sneaky. So when he 
emphasizes this eye contact and standing in the foreground of his portraits by Matthew Brady, it shows that he has this commanding personality and the qualities of leadership that the Whigs don't recognize him for and most historians don't recognize him for. It's also kind of funny to look at these portraits because he was told to stop putting so many books in the portraits but then he just added more because people didn't like an educated man. They thought he was too high and mighty. So he mm -hmm. just added more books to the photograph to say, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. I love that. So in his own quiet way, he's kind of courageously clapping back to all these cartoons and all this slander against his, his image, you know, his, his lack of masculinity in their eyes. And of course his, um, you know, ineffectiveness in responding to the panic of 1837. Um, and now, did the Panic of 1837 resolve itself within his term, or did it have to kind of be carried over to, to the next, I guess, two presidents or however many? It really doesn't resolve itself finally. It just kind of slowly starts to lessen over time until finally, you know, the United States starts to get involved in wartime preparation. So okay. we have the Mexican-American War. That kind of jolts the country out of it. But it's a very slow and very painful economic recession that really doesn't resolve during Van Buren or Harrison during his you know, 40 days in office. Right. All right. Now, I hate to steer the ship in this direction um, since you just very eloquently described the way that he intentionally made himself look in, in his portraits, you know, very noble, very trustworthy. Um, but if we can maybe steer to some of the uglier parts of his administration, um, mm -hmm. such as implementing Jackson's Indian removal policy. What was his role in that? So Jackson passes the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and it's majorly supported by Jackson, though it is enacted during Van Buren's presidency. It's 1838, where he directs General uh, Winfield Scott to forcibly remove all tribes that did not comply with the Indian Removal Act eight years prior. And Winfield Scott's actually one of Van Buren's very close friends. He names his son after him in 1814. His son ends up passing away pretty quickly, but they were very, very close. And it's such an unfortunate stain on American history, American politics. Van Buren saw his role as continuing the strength of Andrew Jackson. And that's not to excuse what he did. It's not to explain away what he did. But he saw it as, I'm following the set law of the nation. And that even goes back to his time apprenticing with Federalists way back when, when he was getting his early education, where he followed the letter of the law, followed the Constitution very specifically, because that's what Federalists believed in. And I believe he, he wrote a lot about why this was a a, a good thing for the Cherokee and, and other mm -hmm. tribes, right? What, what, what were some of the things that he, he wrote about to kind of justify what he was doing? So part of that was kind of this view of paternalism. It's very common during this time. Andrew Jackson thought he was doing good for the tribes of the Southeast. We know that he's not. He knew that he wasn't, but he saw himself as, quote unquote, the great father. He actually adopts um, an indigenous child and raises him as his own. 
because he quite literally sees oh, wow. himself as the great father. So is that where um, that term originates that the Native American tribes use for the president of the United States, the great father? Because you, you hear that a lot when you're reading about United States, Native American tribe relations. I believe so, because it definitely wasn't given to presidents before Andrew Jackson. So he supports this as a way to say this land will be indigenous land forever in perpetuity. Like this will be indigenous land forever. He never saw a future in which Americans were basically stealing portions of reservation land for their own homesteads. So it wasn't a a wink wink type of situation then? No, it was very much this land will be yours forever and you will have complete autonomy over this land. And I apologize, is, is this Jackson saying this or is this uh, Van Buren at this point? Both of them, yeah. Okay. So Van Buren really did believe that removing the indigenous tribes from the Southeast would be able to help them hold on to their culture, their society, to set up their new land in Oklahoma. Of course, we know Looking back, if you grow up learning one type of farming skill and then now you're transported to Oklahoma, which has a completely different climate, you're going to struggle. You're going to suffer. And that's not to say anything about the Trail of Tears, which was a genocidal act perpetuated by the American government against indigenous people. And then- And he had to be aware of how bad that was, right? He was, he was. But at that point, he couldn't do anything. You know, Congress was working against him. The Democrats were working against him. The Whigs were working against him. And unfortunately, there also was the view in American politics of personhood not being applied equally to indigenous peoples. Just awful. Just absolutely (laughs) awful. I mean, which is saying it lightly. Um, I guess so if we can move on to something else that's also awful. Um, When I was reading about Van Buren, I'm the type of person who I'll I'll find something small and it'll, it'll just fascinate me. I'll just want I just want to know everything about this tiny detail. Obviously, the detail wasn't tiny to the people who unfortunately were living through this, but the Amistad affair was also something that took place during his administration. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? I, I thought this was absolutely fascinating how the United States got involved in this situation with, I believe it was a Spanish slave ship. Mm-hmm. and how they responded to it, and how Van Buren responded to it, or or maybe didn't. So the Amistad case happens in 1839. And of course, this is the subject of the 1997 film. So if you've ever seen that movie. I plan to, um, yeah. It's pretty great. So he, you know, later on, he will join the Free Soil Party. At the time, in the 1830s, he views abolitionism as a threat to national unity at the time which we know, of course, it does end up being a threat to national unity, and then we do not have national unity. Right. So, and yeah, and so much of early politics was just kind of people like Jefferson kind of kicking that can down the road until it ultimately blew up. Exactly. So their view was, you know, our our children will be able to deal with it um, because we don't quite know what to do. And then the next generation would say the exact same thing. Which is, which so, is un- I mean, it's understandably like, it's understandable how hard it would be to to do something about it. But at the same time, what a horrible thing to gift your children with down the road. Exactly. And unfortunately, that's a continuity in American politics as well. So if we look at the Amistad case, 
enslaved people were upon the La Amistad, which was a Spanish schooner, and they fought for their freedom. They were able to take their freedom after the schooner's cook jokingly told the enslaved people that they were going to be killed, salted, and cooked. So they rose up after being told this. Wow. wow. They didn't want to be killed and cooked. Yeah, I didn't know that's what it took. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was kind of the final spark to this fire. So they take control of the boat and they're arrested off the coast of New England. And there's two different civil suits that are brought to court. So Martin Van Buren supports the Spanish government's demands that the nation return the enslaved people. However, a federal district court judge rules that the formerly enslaved Africans are legally free and should be transported home. And this is where John Quincy Adams pops back up into our collective memory. And he argues for the freedom of all of the passengers on the Amistad and actually wins the Supreme Court case that Van Buren's administration brought against the enslaved people on the Amistad. So it was president versus president for a moment there. That's Um, really cool. I didn't know that. And they were declared free. Um, I mean, they fought for their freedom, so it wasn't given to them. And they were allowed to return home. And this marks a major growth in the abolitionist sentiment in the North because people start to read these harrowing and devastating testimonies of the enslaved people on the Amistad and stories similar to those cases. And so obviously you have a ton of knowledge about this. You, you referenced the movie. Are there any books, um, maybe either firsthand accounts or uh, just history books about this incident that you could recommend? I mean, honestly, for me, but if, you know, if the listeners want to read them too. So um, there are a couple. I haven't read a ton of them, but the Amistad Rebellion is a good one. So it's called the Amistad Rebellion in Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom. But there are so many good books out there. Also, Amistad by David Pesci, but that's more historical fiction rather than actual history. Did any firsthand accounts emerge from the uh, escaped enslaved people out of this situation? Off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but I know they were published in newspapers at the time. So there are definitely vignettes out there that you can find. Um, If you go to a history of the Amistad captives, that does have a whole bunch of primary source information. So it's from 1840. So it's pretty hard to find. The Mm -hmm. full title is very long. It's called A History of the Amistad Captives being a circumstantial account of the capture of the Spanish schooner Amistad by the Africans on board, their voyage and capture near Long Island, New York, with biographical sketches of each of the surviving Africans, also an account of the trials had on their case before the district and circuit courts of the United States for the District of Connecticut. So that's well, a full title. Hell yeah, I applaud you for knowing that full title. That is awesome. <laughs> I did have to look up the full title because I just call it gotcha. the Amistad Captive. Yeah, because um, usually when it comes to slave narratives, I'm, I'm used to the titles being a little bit long. You know, there's what you know, there's the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, which we all know. I, I, there's the one um, I picked it up when I was down in Virginia this uh, summer, which was uh, I think it's a, something similar, right? The narrative of the the life of oh, I forget his name is it Aludo Equiano. Mm-hmm. So that was another one, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never heard a name of something that's that long. But uh, 
I guess once you start putting it in the search bar, eventually it'll pop up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, I think it's an interesting one because it does have historical record from 1840. It's just hard to find. Okay. And so following that thread along of just Van Buren's view of slavery, how he initially used it as a way to kind of win Southern votes by being against abolishing slavery, and then the way that he treated the Amistad case, I think that is a nice way to bring us to Texas and how Mm -hmm. he handled that during his presidency. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So he is very much against the inclusion of Texas into the United States because he sees Texas as a battleground state, which eventually does become a battleground state for the future of slavery. So he does not want Texas to be included. And that's really one of the points that allows William Henry Harrison to pull ahead of him in terms of the polls. So William Henry Harrison, he runs on the campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler too. He's known as the general of Tippecanoe. He was a general from the War of 1812. His war record was enough to gain widespread appeal in addition to the already existing anti-Van Buren sentiment. So he kind of builds on this anti-Van Buren-ness. And he is able to portray himself as the everyman, much like Andrew Jackson and George Washington kind of become, which is interesting because Harrison is very wealthy and Van Buren is not. And it's it's also interesting with Andrew Jackson. I remember one of the assignments that we did in history class when I was in high school was we put him on trial because that was one of his big sticking points, right? I'm a representative of the common man. So we put him on trial as to whether he was or not. And I think the jury decided that he wasn't Mm -hmm. um, for for some of the reasons that you're going into for him as well as uh, William Henry Harrison. Yeah. So he is seen as the everyman and that's really what gets him a ton of votes, especially because he promises to finally address Texas. So Andrew Jackson had recognized the Republic of Texas, the independent country that won their independence from Mexico in the Texas Revolution. So it's it's kind of confusing because they go from part of Mexico, independent country, trying to join the US, the US saying no, and then finally they do end up joining. So Jackson actually suggests a quick annexation, but that's the end of his term. And there's a lot of controversy in Congress over, well, what do we do? If we add one more slaveholding state, we need to add a free state, you know, the compromise to keep an even distribution in the Senate. Mm -hmm. So Van Buren, this is one of the only times that he goes against Jackson's policies and he wants peace. He wants harmony. So he doesn't want to annex Texas and perhaps start some sort of controversy or some sort of war with the Mexican government. So he turns down the proposition and he says, I will not even entertain it. I won't even talk about it. I won't negotiate it. And he says that fear of war with Mexico and the constitution with the split between free and slave states, those are his major reasons given for the rejection. He also understands that if he extends the nation to Texas, that will flip the Senate closer towards the Southern Democrats who really dislike him and really want to expand slavery. So this kind of unspoken rule of let's just not talk about it. I mean, kind of following the gag rule of like, you're literally not allowed to talk about it, but they also wouldn't talk about Texas. 
So yeah, what was the what was the gag rule? That that really was a shocker to me when I read it. Like you're you're literally not allowed to talk about something on the the, the floors of Congress. Yeah, so that's basically it. it's the gag rule that's instituted in the twenty fourth Congress. So that's 1835 to 1837. And he, it basically says you're not allowed to talk about slavery because we're just going to kick the can down the road. And they continue to do this. It's actually passed in 1835. And then it continues to be passed. One of the most impassioned objectors to the gag rule is, again, our friend John Quincy Adams, who shouts during the roll call because he is not allowed to talk about things. He shouts at the top of his voice, this very old man saying, I hold the resolution to be a direct violation of the Constitution of the United States. Right, and right. Good for him. For years, he fights against it, declaring it a restriction on freedom of speech, that we are actively harming the status of the federal government, but it's reintroduced until 1844. So it's in place for almost 10 years. And has John Quincy Adams passed away at this point? Because I know, I mean, he he died fighting on the Congress floor, right? Essentially? Basically. So his very last moments, like he was still actively working. So I'm not quite sure the year that he dies. Let me quickly look. 1848. So four years later. But he is a representative up until the very end. I mean, look, I, I don't want to dictate, you know, what, what politics should look like um, in the family sphere. But um, I think perhaps Thanksgiving would be a good time for the gag rule, but definitely not when it comes to talking about something as important as slavery. I mean, something that was on everybody's mind at the time. Exactly. And it's so interesting to know that that was the official law of the land to say, we just can't talk about it for 10 years. 10 years. That's insanity. It is. It really is. Um, so before we go to Van Buren's post-presidency, is there anything else that um, you, you would want to talk about that we might have missed while he was in the White House? Um, I mean, Van Buren, he's a very interesting guy. I don't know if I've been able to portray that so much throughout this. I'm, he, I'm interested. I would hope that everybody listening is interested. He's definitely someone that does quite a lot, but doesn't get a lot of recognition. I know the last time I was at Kinderhook, they actually had us like looking at some of his old workrooms because he would write like fervently all day, every day, writing letters, writing his autobiography, writing all of these things because he just wanted so badly to be involved in the room where it happens. And he mm-hmm. was kind of unceremoniously removed. But if we look at kind of a fun fact about him, um, he was a big fan of wine and champagne. Okay. And at one point, the U.S. government actually asked him, Congress asked him to stop drinking so much wine because they were worried he would drown. He would pass away. <laughs> wow. He, so he was that big of a, of a, of a wino then? Yes, he was. And that actually plays into the attacks of Harrison against him because Harrison drank the manly drink of the 1800s. Can you take a guess as to what that is? Ale? Beer? Incorrect. Hard apple cider. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Cause that, that's what, when I was like, admittedly, when I was a little before, you know, the age of 21, which is when we all honestly started drinking, um, that was what I drank before I could handle the taste of beer. So that's kind of interesting. That there's that kind of, I wonder where that flip-flop happened historically from kind of 
Because I mean, I, I guess I would say that beer is kind of the man's drink, right? Definitely in advertising and media. But I think because it was associated with the frontier, so perhaps that's where it came from. But he was very much made fun of by William Henry Harrison in another political cartoon called Metamorphosis, Martin Van Buren, where you could pull a tab on the bottom and his eyes would roll back in his head as if he was taking a drink of hard apple cider and couldn't handle it. Oh my goodness. This makes me curious to like consult the Oxford English Dictionary and just look at the word troll and just mm-hmm. see kind of how we got from whatever they were doing to trolling now, because it really does seem similar. Yeah. So William Henry Harrison was very adept at these attacks and the people around him had the money to support these attacks. So, you know, when people say, oh my gosh, politics are so nasty and dirty, you know, at least we don't have these poll tab interactive political cartoons to make fun of people anymore. Right, right. When you were at Kinderhook, are there any of those that are still in existence in, in, in a collection somewhere? So most of them are in the Library of Congress okay. and um, you can go down and see them. Kinderhook really focuses on his life outside of the presidency. So it talks about his life as a gentleman farmer, his life in the free soil campaign and how he fixed up the house. Okay. Um, so at this point, do we want to move on to Van Buren and his connection with the free soil party? Cause this is definitely something that we're going to get into a lot when it comes to Tilden. Cause that was kind of something that he was involved in, in the early days of uh, sure. his political career. So this is one of his key legacy points, even though it's one of the parties that don't, really last all that long. So it's active between 1848 and 1854. And it's focused specifically on the opposition of slavery into the Western territories. In the 1800s, it was very common to have these small parties pop up for an election or two, just focused on one single issue. Whereas today, I don't know if you would get the recognition or the popularity if you had a party that was just focused on one thing. You know, something that I know people are talking about, like the federal legalization of marijuana. I don't think we would have a party just focused on that one issue really make any sort of impact. So it is kind of a unique time in American politics where we are closer to the parliamentary system, where it is a little bit more focused on multiple parties rather than just the two. Of course, you know, the Whigs and the Democrats are still getting most of the votes and winning most of the elections. But we do have these very small parties that pop up and then kind of either reform, join others, or disappear. So the Free Soil Party is formed after the Mexican-American War and the debates about slavery with all of the new territories that are annexed from Mexico after the war. So both territories in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the territory that we purchased in the Gadsden Purchase. So John Van Buren, who's his son, actually is a founder of the Free Soil Party, and he gets together with a coalition of barn burners, which are named that because they would allegedly burn down the barn if they you didn't listen to their one single issue, anti-slavery Whigs and anti-slavery Democrats. So they all join together and they nominate Martin Van Buren because he is a federal figure. He is someone that could get the name recognition. So he runs for president and he runs with Charles Francis Adams as vice president. Okay. I knew, I knew there was an Adams in there somewhere. 
Yeah, so I'm not sure if he's related. I think Adams is just a pretty common name in the 1800s. But they run in the 1848 election. And this is a significant election because worldwide, there is so much instability going on that people are afraid that it could translate to the United States. So the 1848 rebellions and revolutions in Europe were something that people were talking about during the election. Like, we don't want to go through another revolution. We don't want to have a civil war. And then, you know, less than 20 years later, we do have a civil war. But the Free Soil Party in that first election is pretty prominent, and they receive 10.1% of the popular vote nationwide, which is significant and one of the best third party showings in American history. I'm trying to think if there's even any other parties like that I can think of that came close to that percentage. Like maybe in local elections, but federally, I don't think so. So this is also important too, because the Free Civil Party is kind of an offshoot of the Liberty Party and eventually will join with the Liberty Party, with the Republican Party under Abraham Lincoln to form a much greater presence in American politics. And it marks a real movement from anti-political abolitionists to political abolitionists. So, you know, one of the most famous abolitionists in the 1800s will be William Lloyd Garrison, who really shuns the formal political system because he sees it as not effective and actively against the abolitionist movement. He was correct in both ways, especially with the gag rule. But we start to see this movement away from the anti-political abolitionist movement to a movement in both state and federal politics to push for abolitionist sentiment. So this does allow for the passage of personal liberty laws which were official loopholes or legal loopholes that prevented the enforcement of the fugitive slave law in many Northern states and further legal protections for formerly enslaved African-Americans. So the Free Civil Party is instrumental in pushing for those changes and pushing for the limiting of slavery to the states that already had slavery. So they're not quite like the Liberty Party, where they were fighting for true abolition, the Free Soil Party kind of fights for, well, let's just focus on the territories, because they kind of accurately predicted things like bleeding Kansas, where there is almost a mini civil war or a theater of the civil war before the civil war in Kansas, where people are dying at the polls, you know, fighting back and forth between their popular vote whether or not they're going to allow slavery or not allow slavery. Right. And I think it's so easy in this day and age to kind of view progress in in terms of like, well, you cannot own an individual. That's not right. That's violating their their basic human rights. Um, that even goes against things that were written like by people like Thomas Jefferson. But mm-hmm. we have to remember that the Free Soil Party for its day, that was a huge step in the right direction. I mean, things weren't automatically going to go right towards freeing the enslaved people. You know, there needed to be certain checkpoints along the way until we ultimately got to where we were going. And, you know, unfortunately it was a war that eventually got that result. But yeah, I mean, I I think we should definitely, like you're saying, you know, look at the Free Soil Party as something that was an important step in the right direction that both Van Buren and Samuel J. Tilden were highly associated with. Mm -hmm. And really after his involvement in the 1848 
election. That's kind of the end of Van Buren's political life. He never really seeks public office after that, even though he's very, very closely following national politics. So like I said, like he would sit in that office after his morning ride all day, every day, reading newspapers, reading telegram, well, not telegrams, but reading letters, trying to connect with people outside of New York and what the future of American politics was going to look like. So he actually, while he's retired, he writes a lot of letters opposing the Fugitive Slave Act, opposing the secessionist sentiment in the South. He tries to write articles. He works on a history of American political parties. He goes to Europe and kind of goes on a, a European tour, which makes him the very first former head of state to visit England. So all heads of state had been head of, heads of state when they went and he was a former. And he unfortunately goes back to the Democratic Party in name only because he's worried that if he continues his push for this separate third party, it would give too much power to the Whigs. So very similarly to like Teddy Roosevelt splitting the votes and kind of right with the bull moose party causing his party to fall apart from the inside like that that's what Van Buren is worried about in the 1800s so even before this and he tries to reconcile with the barn burners the hunkers like all of these smaller parties to kind of bring them into the fold to work against the Whigs and he ends up putting his name behind a lot of presidents that start to run after 1848. So he supports Franklin Pierce, he supports James Buchanan, and he supports Stephen Douglas, which we know Stephen Douglas is not successful. Mm-hmm. He also will work against the Know Nothing Party, which I think is kind of a, a feather in his cap because the Know Nothing Party is, you know, I see it as almost the foundation of our anti immigrant, xenophobic, racist political movements in the United States today. The Know Nothing Party was for allegedly Native Americans, meaning Americans born in America, not indigenous people. And it was really focused on racist ideology to prevent further immigration to the United States. So Van Buren will work against them. Um, Of course, he is the child of immigrants, but he also sees it as that is not the American dream and that's not the America that he wants to cultivate. And that's so much of American history, right? I mean, the promise of America um, in contrast to what it actually is right now. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he puts his name out there quite a bit because he's not really doing all that much besides reading the news. So he makes comments on the Dred Scott case. He makes comments on bleeding Kansas. He is anti-Dred Scott decision. So he thinks Roger Taney made a grievous mistake. He thinks he completely led the country to civil war. He sees Buchanan as being very ineffective with the bleeding Kansas issue, which is interesting because those were the attacks leveled against him in the panic of 1837. So he is someone that puts his name out there and tries to get involved, even though people really don't listen to him. Another kind of fun, interesting fact, because we don't really see that all that much today, is that In 1861, a lot of the living former presidents wanted to get together and 
propose an, an end to the war. So they wanted to kind of all get together and approach Lincoln as this collection of former presidents to help him out with the Civil War. Interesting. And what kind of end were they proposing to kind of make peace with the South and like, you know, you live your life the way you want, we live ours, or, or, or a peace that would end slavery across the board? So because Franklin Pierce was the one who came up with this idea, he wanted to go back to the way things were. So he wanted this uneasy peace. And he actually asked Van Buren if he will be the one to call the meeting because he was the most senior former president. Also because Franklin Pierce was historically one of the worst presidents we've ever had. He doesn't do anything his entire term. So it's kind of funny, not funny that after he's president, he's like, wait, listen to me, guys, let's talk. So Van Buren actually tells him, I'm not going to do it because Buchanan should do it since he was the most recent former president. And Pierce should ask him himself rather than asking Van Buren to ask Buchanan. So Pierce wouldn't do it because he didn't do a lot of things and nothing really happened from it. And once the Civil War starts, Van Buren makes it very public that he supports the union and the union only. Okay, so I have, I guess, like three more questions for you. Um, so in this episode, you know, our goal was to understand almost President Samuel Tilden a little bit better by understanding one of his big mentors in his early days in New York politics. So if you had to say, what lessons do you think a young New York politician could take away from the political career of Martin Van Buren? So if we can like imagine for a moment that Van Buren is Yoda, which kind of works because he was one of our shortest presidents. What lessons is he second imparting shortest. to? Okay, second shortest. <laughs> okay. Um, what lessons is he imparting to our, you know, Luke Skywalker? If we continue with that metaphor, uh, Samuel Tilden, in your in your estimation. So maybe his advice would be, on a silly note, don't drink so much champagne. But on a more serious note, temperance um, is good advice, I suppose. Yeah, temperance. Try some hard apple cider. See what the kids are talking about. But I think. He is someone that held strong to his view of what America should be. And did he make mistakes along the way? Of course, like he made some really horrific mistakes. So I think his advice would be to not only understand what you believe in, but to stick to those beliefs and to also understand how people see you. So he was someone that was kind of obsessed with his image. And he plays with that image to get some popular support, even though it's not quite successful in the long run. I think his advice would be to see how people talk about you. And if you need to alter how you look to those people, then that might be something you have to do. Hmm, interesting. I'd be curious to see, yeah, I mean, in, in continuing to read about Tilden, if you know, those are things that he winds up doing. Mm-hmm. And then um, lastly, uh, before I get to the the silly question that I have, um, is there anything that we left out? Um, is there anything that you wish people knew about Van Buren that they don't? So I wish people knew about Van Buren, period. I think that would be a good first step. But I also think one of my big focuses as a teacher is to look at history with a different lens. So not necessarily not necessarily the lens of 
the old white guy historian, which unfortunately is pervasive within our, our curriculum just everywhere in the United States, but looking at Van Buren through the lens of well, what does gender mean to him? You know, we can't retroactively apply any sort of label to him. We can't retroactively say this is what he meant or this is what he was doing. So we just have to kind of take him at face value. But if we look at manhood and we look at machismo and we understand the connections in politics and in society between machismo, masculinity and power, I think that would be a really great conversation for people to have. There's an amazing book by Kristen Hoganson about American manhood as it focuses on later politicians. So let me see if I can pull up the full title really quick. I have it on my bookshelf if I walked across my room, but it's called Fighting for American Manhood by Kristen Hoganson. And it really focuses on the Spanish American War and the Philippine American War and how manhood and machismo pushed the nation into warfare. And I think if we start to understand that moving forward, our political disputes might change, they might lessen, but I also think it would be helpful for historians to acknowledge the role that gender plays in politics. That sounds like a really interesting book. And um, so if you're comfortable with me diving into your, your career and a few of the classes that I know that you teach, do you find yourself speaking about these aspects of Van Buren in your gender studies class? Not specifically of Van Buren, but we do talk about modern politicians and the ways in which gender expression seem to play within their public persona. So definitely with modern politicians, we talk about how these coded insults can be gendered insults, and we don't even recognize them a lot of the time because we're so used to it. You know, we're, we're so used to the common schoolyard taunt of like, well, you throw like a girl, you run like a girl. Why is that? Why is that bad? Uh, why is that something that's a very common insult on American playgrounds? And what can we do about it? So we definitely talk about it with modern politicians because we'll see one very common attack against Trump in terms of his expression was that he had small hands. Mm -hmm. What does that matter? And it matters because small hands is associated with a gendered attack. Why does he care about a gendered attack? Well, that plays into his overall machismo and personality within the political sphere. Right. And I mean, I hate to view Trump as a victim in any way, but I mean, I, I find myself in absolute agreement with that. Yes. I mean, it's definitely an interesting perspective for students to take because a lot of times they don't think about how gender plays into politics. You know, they think, well, we haven't had a female president and that's the extent of gender and politics. No, talking about masculinity is so important as well. Okay. And lastly, um, just a question that I had personally before we get to our book recommendation section. So we, we know, as, as we talked about, Van Buren was a fashionable guy. He mm-hmm. was often referred to as a bit of a dandy in his time. And um, for me personally, I don't think that'll ever be a word used to describe me. And I'm not sure if I'm okay with that. Um, I was never raised to care about fashion. I'm the oldest of five. So, you know, as you know, I'm still trying to, as I grow, 
um, figure out how my parents managed to pull that off, you know, feed us, clothe us, shelter us, make sure that we all got a college education. But now that I'm a man and looking at my fashion sense, or honestly, rather my lack of a fashion sense, I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about what kind of a makeover I would get if I hung out with Van Buren. And let's say that Van Buren's alive today and he's aware of all the latest fashion trends today, just to kind of make it a little easier. And we'll also say that we'll imagine that I'm not a teacher, so I have money to spend. Um, it's not an object here. What would Van Buren do to improve my fashion sense? Well, Van Buren was a big fan of the coats, the waistcoats, the vests, and the tails. So I definitely see him as, I don't want to say as like a, a modern day hipster, but I would see him as someone who dresses pretty business casual, but on the brink of something controversial. And I'm by controversial, that's probably the, not the right word to use, but I see him as someone who does take fashion risks because for him to wear these very fancy French suits, that was a, fresh, a fashion risk at the time. So maybe he's the guy who wears, um, you know, the suits with, or a suit jacket with the jeans or some sort of like fancy sneaker with a very formal outfit. But I, I definitely see him as someone maybe like in a, that a, realm. Maybe like a scarf in the summer or something like that? I think so. Okay, um, okay. So maybe he would be someone that would advise you to do that. He's a big fan of the mutton chops. So he might require that you grow out mutton chops. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I'd be willing to give that a try. I'm not, the girlfriend might have some disagreements, but uh, you know, for the sake of history. For the sake of history and for trying something new, you never know. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I've never worn a, a jacket with, with the tails. So I would be interested to see. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm too tall for it. So nobody would accuse me of looking like the penguin from Batman, you know, so <laughs> that might that might go off well, but okay. I definitely have something to think about. Maybe you'll see my fashion change in the in the coming months, thanks to Van Buren. <laughs> um, it would be very interesting, to say the least. Yeah, because I'm I'm a very plain dresser, so this would definitely be a uh, a new a new thing for me for sure. Um, all right. There's so also another bit, just fun fact, and I know that you like coffee and tea. Mm-hmm. He was a big coffee drinker and had all the latest gadgets for making coffee. So I also see him as a very big like coffee snob if he was alive today. He'd okay. be, you know, that guy on TikTok showing you the most expensive gadget to make a single cup of coffee or like I think espresso would blow his mind. So that was also another facet to his personality. He loved gadgets. He loved, you know, the newest, the best, the brightest. So he could even potentially be an influencer then about he coffee could. culture, wine culture. I mean, he definitely tried to be an influencer in the 1800s. Uh-huh. But just people stopped listening to him. Right, right. Do you think he would like IPAs? Because I'm a big IPA guy. Um, I'm not sure. I think he would be more of a wine guy. Okay, because you said hipster and immediately just in my mind just flash IPA, you know, when you think of hipsters. No, I could see him at like a a nice wine bar ordering a very expensive red wine and then telling people about the tasting notes. Like, oh, do you taste honeysuckle and wind off a a great plain and notes of coffee bean? Like that, that's more his style. Okay. So he's kind of swirling it around the glass, smelling it, you know, just (laughs) interesting. Okay. 
Sounds like sounds like a pretty cool guy. I mean, I I think I could get over the snobbery um, for the fashion advice and for improving my tasting coffee and uh, wine. <laughs> All right. So last question. We like to end every podcast by recommending books to our listeners. Is there anything that you're reading right now that you think people should check out? So right now I'm actually reading Good Omens. I'm about to finish it. So it's more of a a fun read, but in terms of historical books, and that's Neil Gaiman. Yes, Neil okay. Gaiman. Yeah. Um, in terms of historical books, I definitely recommend Fighting for American Manhood by Kristen L. Hoganson. If you're interested in looking at history, international relations, and gender history to kind of understand a topic in American history that we don't talk about a lot, which is the Spanish American and Philippine American Wars, I feel mm-hmm. like that gets, you know, a blip in our curricula and then we move on and we we talk about something else but it's definitely an interesting moment because we really don't talk about it it's like mentioned for just a minute and then we jump straight into early 1900s how are we dealing with the depression world war one like all of those things mm-hmm. so it's not really talked about but i think kristen hoganson does an amazing job at looking at the intersection of gender and um politics. Awesome. All right, folks. So you got some great recommendations and I appreciate you giving some recommendations because, you know, Kevin and I have our wheelhouse of books that we read that we're always trying to expand. So it's not only great for us, but also great for our listeners to, to hear something different that they might be interested in exploring as well. So thank you for those. Yeah, no problem. And I mean, it's definitely a nice way to look at different perspectives in history. My last recommendation um, is actually the book that I gave our summer boss, Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, which is a history of lesbian life in America. And Hmm. it's written by Lillian Faderman. She's an amazing historian. I got to see her speaking at TCNJ once upon a time, and she's fantastic. She's so engaging. So once Dan gives it back to me, I can definitely let you know and and let you read it. That's awesome that he's borrowing that. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I learned so much. Um, I'm sure that our listeners learned a ton from having you on. You are are literally an encyclopedia with so much of this historical knowledge. And it's awesome how you kind of enable people to look at it through all these different lenses to kind of attempt to get a full rounded image. Um, You know, especially when we were talking about things like the Petticoat Affair. I definitely learned a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And, um, Listeners, we will catch you next month. No problem. I had a lot of fun. Next time on the Almost Presidents podcast, we continue talking about Samuel Tilden, his rise in the Democratic Party, and some of the key figures that he would brush shoulders with on his rise to prominence in politics, in America, in the pre-Civil War years. And that's next time on the Almost Presidents podcast. Make sure to check it out wherever you get podcasts. And thank you for listening. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is the almost presidents podcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.